continue. So we are on page um, 68, okay? So the Kuzari has now been somewhat intrigued, right? The rabbi, the rabbi had responded to the, Kuzar, to the Kuzarian king. Why it is that he actually mentions the specific miracles and does not focus on the logical and intellectual basis for believing in Judaism in and of itself or believing in Judaism above and beyond any other potential religious um, faith. But the reason why he focuses is actually on the miracles. He's going to explain because he does not actually find it satisfying because if anything is intellectual there's many different ways that people can take it and many different angles that people can take with it but something that is a tangible proof that there's no way to deny your eyes so the Kazari told him your words make more sense i would like to continue this conversation and the rabbi said no 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 actually the very first thing that i said is what should have intrigued you not the next point that i made which was once again an abstract point the very first thing is what should have already hooked you on the contrary, my opening words are the greatest proof of the truth of my religion. And moreover, they require no additional demonstrations or proofs. That's it. I don't need anything more to say. The Kuzari asked, how can this be so? The rabbi answered, if you give me permission to preface my words, I will gladly explain. I think these introductory remarks are necessary since my words seem a burden to you and are being easily dismissed. In other words, what he's saying is that the ideal way to achieve an understanding or recognition of God, a recognition of the role that the Jewish people have to play in this world is to understand based on tangible proofs. Sometimes I see I need to appeal to the intellect so as to make it easier for the tangible proofs to fall on non-deaf ears, right? On listening ears, right? As opposed to the Rambam who would say the opposite, that first you deal with the tangible proofs and then afterwards you can speak to the intellect more, okay? So the Kuzari said, state your introductory remarks and I will listen. The rabbi said, let us say you were told that we have evidence that the king of India is a benevolent man worthy of praise and honor. The proof of this is in the fact that the subjects of his kingdom are all righteous, kind, and upstanding. Would you believe this attestation about the conduct of the king and feel compelled to praise him? In other words, what would be the way to establish that the king is a righteous person? Would it make sense to say, well, all of his subjects are righteous, must be that he's righteous, right? A benevolent man, right? Or would it make more sense to say the king is a benevolent man because look, here's the king and he's benevolent, right? What would be the more roundabout way and what would be the more direct way? The Kuzari replied, why should I? Who can tell? Maybe the Indians are righteous without a king at all. Maybe they are righteous because of their king, or maybe it's a combination of both. The rabbi said, now let us say Indian messengers bring you special Indian gifts. You have irrefutable evidence that they could only have come from the king's palace, and they are accompanied by letters clearly, clearly bearing the king's distinguished seal and handwriting. Along with the letters are medicines that can cure you of all your maladies and preserve your health. Also included are poisons and chemicals that you can use against enemies. And they are so powerful that you can fight whole battles using just this chemical arsenal without any other weapons. Would you not then feel obliged to divert your attention and pledge your allegiance to this king and to serve him? In other words, one of them will be deductive reasoning from recognizing that there are a group of people who seemingly pledge their allegiance to a specific power, and they all seem to be upstanding people. Presumably that power is also an upstanding power. But the other way is for there to actually be something tangible, something that is real, something that we can touch that are directly coming from that king. And the way that we know that directly come from the king is because we have his handwriting, okay? So on the bottom, they quote 
the three good things that the king can do. He can heal your sickness, he can preserve your health, and he can ward off your enemies. And this is based directly on three consecutive verses in Shemot in Exodus, in which God states how he will help the Jewish people. Verse 25, and you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless your bread and water. I shall remove sickness from your midst. Verse 26, there shall be no woman who miscarries or is barren. I will make the number of your days complete. Verse 27, I will let the dread of me go before you and will confound all nations that you encounter. I will cause all your enemies to turn in retreat. So we can, God cures, God preserves, and God helps us fight against our enemies, right? These are two different things, right? Good health can be achieved in one of two ways, right? Good health can be achieved through removing illnesses, right, or healing illnesses, and also through ensuring that the illness never comes in the first place, right? A pound, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? But they both get you to the same place, right? So all three things the king is able to do, in other words, God. The Guzari replied, absolutely, my initial doubt as to whether or not the Indians even have a king would be removed. And I would also believe that this king and his interests are a benefit to me. Okay, so point number one is to establish beyond the doubt that this king exists, and that would be established through this, through this um, show of his, of his powers. But also, it would be very, very convincing and very enticing for me to start following his faith, because I see what the very tangible benefits will be. The rabbi asked, and if someone should ask you your opinion about this king, what would you say? And this is the kicker. The Kuzari said, I would start with praises that describe what I knew about the king based on the evidence of his gifts. And then I would add additional accolades based on what I had heard about him that were confirmed through those gifts, right? If you're trying to explain to somebody in a completely abstract being, right, what would be the first way that you would try to explain? Would you first try to explain the abstract being, or would you first say the tangible fruits, the tangible payroll, the fruits that you have received? That will then help make it more and more real, right? You always try to make something relatable, right? You know, you're taught in, uh, in public speaking things, right? You're always supposed to use a real life example, right? Why? Because the real life example is something that people tune into because it, it's relatable, okay? So if you're able to say right away, here's a tangible benefit that I received from this individual, there's something that people can relate to right away. And that's the first way to establish the existence of that individual. The rabbi said, this is exactly the way I responded to you when you first made your inquiry. This is also how Moshe first spoke with Cairo when he told him that the God of the Hebrews had sent him. Moshe referred to God as the God of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Because it was well known among the nations of that time that God had communicated with these men, guided them, and performed miracles for them. Note that Moshe did not say that the God of heaven and earth had sent him, nor did he refer to him as he who created us all. Because although that is true, both of those points are true, but there is a more concrete way by which the nations of the world could identify God. So that will be the very first thing that Moshe tries to say. Similarly, when God first spoke to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, he declared, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, but not I am the creator of the universe and your creator. God himself, when he speaks to us at Mount Sinai, what does he say? He says, I took you out of Egypt. He does not say I created the world and rested on the seventh day. That's not how he establishes himself. Why doesn't he establish himself like that? After all, God is speaking to us. There can be no doubt when God is speaking to you. This is the voice of God. There's no, there's no possibility that it's anybody other than the voice of God, right? So why wouldn't God just say, I am the God who created the world. I am the God who created you. I am the God of your forefathers even. 
The answer is because we actually at that moment knew God by a different way, different means. We knew God because as soon as he split the sea, as soon as he took us out of Egypt, we believed in God. So when the voice is speaking to us, it's just establishing the voice with the God that we know about. This is one and the same, because that's the easiest thing for us to relate to. This is how I started to respond when you asked me about my faith. I answered what I and the rest of the Jewish people are obliged to believe based on our firsthand encounter with God at Mount Sinai. We have passed down this account without interruption from generation to generation. And so even today, it is as if we are eyewitnesses to the event. Okay, we're going to explore this in, in greater detail tomorrow night, Bezrat Hashem, because this is a very, very important point. And this is the, like, to some extent, the greatest proof of the existence of God as the Kuzari sees it. It's really just been established over those last, the parable, and then this point right here of how he brings out the parable. So tomorrow night, we're going to discuss that in, in, in greater detail, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to explain that so that it, it becomes abundantly clear what the point that he's trying to make is. Okay, Dave,